0: He was a police officer in one of America's most violent cities. We're going to talk about the murder of a police officer that we both had connections to, his career, and much more. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com The world-renowned treatment program for first responders because, at times, helpers need help. Exclusive treatment services for first responders who may suffer from exposure to trauma, PTSD, anxiety, depression, and substance abuse. For free 24-7 information, call 833-776-1420. 833-776-1420. That's 833 776 1420 or online at Fhehealth.com. That's F-H-E-Health.com. Under programs, you'll find details about shatterproof. Calling us from the Baltimore area, we have retired Baltimore police detective Gary McElhaney, also retired Chief Police of Maryland Transportation Authority, author, co-author of the book Bleeding Blue: Four Decades Policing in the Violent City of Baltimore, with co-author Kevin Coward. Gary, thanks so for being a guest on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Very much appreciated. Thanks for the opportunity. It's a pleasure to be with you. Number one, I, I got to say this. Gary and I, our careers overlapped. We both worked in the Baltimore Police Department. I believe you were an east side cop and I was west side. So we really didn't know each other.
1: Right. Um, in Baltimore City, there's a clear dividing line. Not only when it comes to crime and perpetrators, but um, kind of Uh, cop's career path if you will um you either start on the east side you end on the east side you start on the west side you end on the west side but yeah i spent my career um on the street in in the northeast district and what years were you there uh i joined as a as a cadet as a uh, 19 year old in in 1980 um and was assigned to planning the research um doing cadet stuff which is you know Filing papers, mostly. Uh, and then I, I was my first assignment was the Northeast District.
0: And a lot of people realize is cadets, they do a lot of clerical work, and then they go in the academy just like everybody else. Got to go through the whole process just like everyone else. And it's a way of extending your career. You can start earlier. But from 19 to 21, you weren't policing. You were a clerk.
1: Exactly. Um, I, I went into the academy just before I turned uh 21 which as long as you turn 21 while you were in the academy you were were good to go um but i learned a lot about the department working in headquarters i actually worked on the eighth floor of our old headquarters building which you'll know was where the police commissioner and the command staff was Mm -hmm. so um
0: you hated getting called there if you got called by dispatcher or report to eighth floor of the headquarters building it was never good
1: no, you usually probably went with your badge in your hand
0: and your gun <laughs> unloaded. Um. Fortunately, I never got that call. I got the call to IA uh, many times internal affairs, but I never got the call to go to the eighth floor. It never happened.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I always tell a, a funny story. As cadets, we weren't allowed to use the elevators. Um, we had to walk the steps. Right. And um, and if you ever tried to sneak on the elevator, invariably you'd run into our old police commissioner Donald Yeah. or one of the um, or one of the command staff members who would give you a sideways look, and you hit the next button and got off.
0: <laughs> when we were in the academy, if my memory serves correct, it was a long time ago. I went in 1980. When I was in the academy, we had to take the stairs. We weren't allowed to take the elevator, and. It- when, yep. when you did take the elevator, you know what would happen. Now, this is for the benefit of people who don't know. There was a character, and when I say character, we had so many great characters in Baltimore Police Department named Jules Neviker. Jules was famous <laughs> for pranking people, and his ID photo that he have on, you had to wear inside the building would oftentimes time, have photos of someone else. And I got in the elevator one time, and he had a photo, since Graduate Academy, he had a photo of the commissioner on, and guess who was standing next to him?
1: <laughs>
0: this guy was It had to
1: be the commissioner. It was. Yeah. He
0: was priceless. So, you know, there's a lot of levity. Those are things that I miss. You know what I don't miss, Gary, is, and I, I, people ask me all the time, and I don't normally entertain the question, how violent— is Baltimore, and they act like it's a recent thing. In the 1980s, it was no joke. As a matter of fact, it might even be more violent than it is today.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I think, um, you know, when you look back at the 80s, and even earlier, when when you look back at history of our department, um, you know, police officers murdered sitting in their cars um, by members of the Black Panther Party. Um, That occurred in Baltimore on Greenmount Avenue. Um, And the murders were well over 300 in the eighties, which is kind of the artificial benchmark, if you will, that people tag on Baltimore when it comes to whether it's violent or not. Um, but I think the difference now is Baltimore city's population might be, you know, 40, 50% of what it was yeah. back then. Yeah. Um, so sheer per capita numbers is what people focus on. But Baltimore has always been a major, 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 City when it comes to violence. And, you know, we led the country in, in heroin. Baltimore was the heroin capital of the East Coast for much of the um, late 60s, 70s, going into the 80s. And then, of course, took off when crack cocaine became um, the drug of choice on our streets.
0: Many changes. Well, I think when I started in Baltimore, there's about 880,000 people. Uh, in the 60s or 70s, there was a million plus in, in Baltimore City. Yep and now last time i checked i think it's about 660,000 and they're they're like 500 police short so one of the things that people really need to understand and i'm just using numbers from wikipedia and i'm going from the top of my head cuz i don't have them in front of me from 1980 to last year 2021 11,500 plus people were murdered in baltimore 11,000 oh, and, and people act like that's just an everyday occurrence. They don't get up in arms. Can you imagine? We, we didn't have that many people killed, I believe, in the Afghanistan war in 20
1: years. Correct. Correct. Or in our, war, our turtle war and terror.
0: It, it, it is mind-boggling. And so, again, how violent is Baltimore? That's a question I don't like to answer. That's a question I don't entertain very often. I'm sure you got this, too. I was involved in four shootings in in a little more than 10 years. The first two, I never fired back. They were never like they're portrayed in the media. The news media in particular portrays them as a certain way that we're all trigger happy. That's not the case. But shootings, and while they were everyday occurrence in Northwest District of Baltimore and Western, murders weren't. Murders were quite frequent, but shootings were
1: daily. Yeah, Baltimore— in terms of how violent it is right now is extremely violent because, you know, the majority of the homicides in Baltimore used to be attributed to the West, to the Western or the Eastern District, two very small districts within the police department's nine district structure. But now it's spread. Now, Northeast, uh, two years ago, Northeast had one of the largest increases um in homicides and shootings, and as you know, we used to call it Northeast a Country Club, right? It, exactly. could, it had two golf courses in the district, yeah. um, and that's where you went to retire.
0: That's where cops went to retire. Right. Like, oh, you, know, you
1: took your nothing bad right, you happened there. Your putter. Right. You had your putter in the back of the trunk, <laughs> <That's> um, <laughs> you know, for those slow nights. But um, that's that's not the case now, and, and and we've seen a lot of what you and I would call innocence. Yeah. Right, so robberies gone bad. Um, people shot on the street. People shot in in the Baltimore Inner Harbor. Homicides occurring at the harbor, yeah. um, the crown jewel of Baltimore, which used to be protected with everything they had. Um, you know, we've had a couple of those recently. Um, and it's, so, it's, yeah, it's, it, never it's literally out of control.
0: We've got crime with sque- squeegee kids. We've got crime and uh, people just. And, and I hate to say this negatively, and it sounds negative when I say it. For many, many years, Baltimore had a huge drug problem. And no one seemed to care until it entered the suburbs, until it entered the counties and the more affluent right. neighborhoods. And that violence goes with it. It's part of the game. When we return to our conversation with Gary McElhaney, we're going to talk about more of his career. We're going to talk about homicides of police officers, and one in particular that we both have a connection to. His book, and so much more. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Of all the radio stations in the United States, there's only one show like ours: the Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. And on Facebook, there's only one official page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. That's Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. On Facebook, when you get there, click like and follow. Are you wondering where you can find more great podcasts? Head to let click Be Heard, and discover other fantastic podcasts like this one. Also available on our free app, all at letradioshow.com. dot com. We're turning our conversation with Gary McElhinney on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Gary is a retired Baltimore police detective. He is also a retired Maryland Transportation Authority police chief. He's co-authored the book, Bleeding Blue, Four Decades Policing the Violent City of Baltimore with co-author Kevin Coward. In that book, it's a collection of stories from your experience, but it's also really focusing on the murder of many Baltimore police, isn't it?
1: Um, it is. I, you know, I, for 10 of my years in the Baltimore police department, I was president of the police union, uh, the fraternal order of police. And um, that was a full-time job uh, for me. And um, I got to know many of the, the our survivors of officers who were killed um, and work with them on projects um, that were near and dear to them and us. So uh, yeah, I, I focus a lot of attention on the book onto those heroes and, um, who were killed uh, during my career.
0: I got to say this. Uh, I've been a member of the Baltimore FOP since 1980. I'm still, even though I've been retired 30-plus years, I'm still a member, dues-paying member, and their main reason why is the legal defense of officers. They saved my life when I did nothing wrong, and they do that for many, many others. Uh, it's great organization. And they get unfair press all the time, the news media. It's, they make them sound like... We use the term police union. You just said that it's not really a union. We're not allowed to do a lot of things that a lot of unions can, but it's the only thing we have.
1: Yeah. um, You know, I'm, I'm a diehard FOP uh, supporter and I'm, I'm still on their board of directors. And I did have the privilege of working for eight years at the law firm that represented police officers. (laughs) They were the best um, later in my career. And, um, the, the work they do to save those who are unjustly accused um, for a variety of reasons, political or otherwise, um, is, is, it's been consistent. I think that firm has probably been representing police officers in Baltimore for well over 45 years.
0: They, they've done a great job, and I don't talk about my story because It's not just my story. It's my ex-wife's story. It's my daughter's story. It's my current wife, my mom, my sister's. Those are the same last names to me, so I don't talk about it. The show really is about my guests. And I want to go back to, we know each other. We know of each other. We never worked together that I can recall. Might have been maybe... What they called mass raids in projects where they gathered up right, operations. Right. Other than that, I, I don't think I ever really stumbled across Gary. But we knew of each other, and we knew that he had a great reputation. And when I heard about your book, Bleeding Blue, Four Decades Police in the Violent City of Baltimore, I reached out to you. By, by the way, the co-author is Kevin Cowherd, who's a phenomenal journalist in the Baltimore area. And I reached out to you and said, look, we we got to talk. What's this about? And you said it was about the murders of many Baltimore police, and you started mentioning some. And there's one, there's many that really impacted me tremendously, but there's one of a young officer named Vincent Adolfo that really, to this day, still bothers me very deeply.
1: Yeah, um, it, it bothers all of us. And, you know, we came on around the same time, so we were, you know, you and I were we were in, in our careers as Vince was in his career. Right. And, um, I know I was in patrol. Um, Vince was a patrol guy. Um, we were both young. It, it really hit home to me, you know, newly married. Um, and Vince was doing the night he was murdered, um, was doing what we all, did and, and really loved to do. I mean, you know, people talk about getting the police work for service and, and other things, but, you know, chasing bad guys was what we loved to do. Um, and, you know, that's what Vince did that night. The details of that night. Show what kind of police officer Vince was, and it was reflective of, you know, the thousands of other officers in patrol that were just, you know, out there day in, day out doing their job.
0: Yeah, they were they're grinding out calls for service and looking for bad guys in their post, and we had a real. Post mentality. Look, I didn't want other cops having to handle my post cut meant they had to disregard theirs. I didn't want other cops from other sectors coming to our sector to do it or other districts. So we would stack calls, but we always had the mentality and our sergeants drilled into this. Look, make sure your post is clean. Get get the bad guys off the street. Know who they are. And a long yeah. story short, I had it, it, a run-in, I guess is a little more than a year before, and a very quick explanation of story. I, I was getting out of my patrol car. I walked into a known drug retail establishment, uh, and a guy opened the door for me who had arrested many times before. And he said to me, That guy walking down the street's got a gun in his shopping bag. And he just grabbed the guy and I saw him. And I walked after him and I called for backup. My backup officer came up. We grabbed the guy. Long story short, When this plastic bag hit the hood of our patrol car, back then it was AMC Concords. That's how long ago it was. (laughs) Yes, they were. (laughs) It was a heavy metallic sound, and we knew right away what that was, and he reached for it. And we grabbed them, secured them, and turned out to be a 357 Magnum. And his name was Flint Gregory Hunt. And he was, was, if my memory, memory is correct, he was convicted. He had other things he was convicted for. He was supposed
1: to be in prison. He wasn't. Yeah, um, Flint Gregory Hunt was, um, you know, it's, it's an understatement. He was really a bad guy. He was known on the streets of, of Baltimore as being extremely violent, um, not wrapped real tight when it comes to um, people's ability to influence him, to get him to do things. Plus, he did it on his own. He was a street guy, and um, he was out there for no good and no amount. Um, if he was going to be on the street, he was going to be committing crimes. And quite frankly, his, his history when he was incarcerated, he was committing crimes inside as well.
0: Yeah. As a matter of fact, the guy who who tipped me off about him said he's here to hit somebody, uh, which was slang yeah. back then for, for murder. He was there looking for someone to shoot. And he had a beef with someone yeah. on the west side, and he came all the way over. And I believe he even took the bus. Uh, it, it was not uncommon for extremely violent criminals to take Mass transit.
1: Yeah, I mean, and it was unusual because he did have a reputation and a history of being on both sides of town. Yeah, I mean, he was an east side guy, um, it was where he laid his head a lot. But he was um, known to be in the western district, and quite frankly, he was a hitman because he got, he's got other bodies on him as right. well besides Vince's.
0: And we'll talk about that in a moment. And, and you, you said something. This is like going back in history, and it's not necessarily. <laughs> all pleasant. It's, it's Some of it's very emotionally upsetting. I worked narcotics for many years out of the Northwest District, and there was details of DEA. And I remember on a drug raid in the southern end of Northwest District, and it was a multi-level building with a fire escape in the back. And somehow or another, meanest guy got in this fire escape, and it was between me, I was between him and the exit. And he was a known hitter. And he had about seven, so-called at that time, seven bodies under his belt. And when you've got to go up against someone like that, I'm going to tell you right now, just my experience, professionalism, courtesy, nice language, all that stuff goes out the window and it can quite often become a battle of life and death. And that's what happened.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, uh, you know, you got, you, you know tr- hopefully training kicks in when you go up against a guy like that, but it's a street fight. It's a street fight. It's
0: ugly. No one likes street fights. Even cops. And we had a saying: It's like making sausage. No one wants to see it made in public. This is law enforcement today's show. We're to turn our conversation with Gary McElhinney in just a few moments. There's so much more to talk about. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back.
1: Have you ever wanted to listen to a favorite Law Enforcement Today episode again? Or chat directly with John J. Wiley? Now you can. Download Podopolo for free on either app store and send John J. Wiley a DM right on the app. That's P-O-D-O-P-O-L-O,
0: Podopolo. Has this ever happened to you? You sign up for a free email newsletter and within hours, you're receiving tons of spam. That won't happen when you subscribe for the free Law Enforcement Today radio show email newsletter. We won't spam you. No more than two emails a week. I promise. All subscribers are automatically entered in all future contests. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Scroll down to the sign up area. That's letradioshow.com. conversation with Gary McElhaney on the Law Enforcement Today show, Gary is a retired Baltimore police detective. He's our brother served the same time as me. Our careers overlapped. He's also retired Maryland Transportation Authority chief of police, the agency-protected Port of Baltimore, BWI Marshall Airport, state bridges, tunnels, and toll roads, co-author of the book, Bleeding Blue, Four Decades Policing in the Violent City of Baltimore, with co-author Kevin Coward. Now, this book is a lot about all the officers that were murdered and their stories of what happened and a little bit of backstories about their family. The the one we're talking about in particular, because there's a connection is the murder of police officer Vincent Adolfo. I explained my part before. Can you tell us what happened? What transpired?
1: Yeah. Um, on the night of November 18th, 1985, uh, Vince was doing what a lot of us who were new, to relatively new to law enforcement and in patrol, he was doing the meal run for the Eastern district. And the meal run is there's prisoners. There's a cell block at the Eastern district where Vince was assigned. Um, his job was to, to pick up the meals, you know, and deliver them to the cell block meals were all, all made off Um, and he was returning actually from the, the city jail where they prepared the meals for the Eastern. And, um, Vince was returning to the district from the meal run, um, Saw a car back then. We didn't have computers in our cars. Um, we had what was called the hot sheet, um, and um, it was a sheet of paper that listed a lot of stolen cars on it. Um, Vince had it pinned to the to his dashboard, like most of us did, uh, with a thumbtack. Um, and you know, he real he noticed that the car was stolen. Um, called it in um, to confirm it and then proceeded to do what was tactically um, exactly how we were trained. Um, He followed it. Um, He noticed it was occupied by a couple individuals. He called that into dispatch. He waited for help in order to be able to box in uh, the vehicle. Um, He didn't try to do it by himself, knowing he had multiple folks in the car. Um, And they initiated basically a, a textbook car stop so much so that the car that was stolen um actually hit one of the police cars um during the stop and this was on the east side um of baltimore where vince worked um immediately upon the car stopping um the driver exited the vehicle and ran. Um, as we all try to do, we want to get the driver. He's the priority. Um, uh, Vince took off after the dryer while, driver while other officers, uh, detained the passengers. And there was a gun in the car, um, as well. Um, uh, Vince took off, um, in a foot chase, caught up to the driver in a, in what was called an alley, but is actually kind of a, a street combination alley, Baltimore city, you know, as you know, is a series of warehouses, small streets, um, nooks and crannies, if you will. Um, and Vince cha- chased the, um, the driver of the vehicle down the alley and, um, was able to catch up to him. Uh, again, our training at that time was you would sprawl people onto a wall or a fence that is, you know, kind of like you saw on the TV, you know, hands out wide, feet out wide, um, on the wall. That was the training at the time. It, it's now different. And we probably should get into that, uh, at some point, but Vince did it by textbook. Um, And as he was doing his pat-down and getting ready to handcuff um, an individual who turned out to be named Flint Gregory Hunt, um, he pushed off the wall, which, um, as we know, is something that that people who are incarcerated quite often practice.
0: They practice it regularly. It was part of their daily training out in the yard.
1: Yep. And um, so... You know, he, he pushed off the wall, was able to cause Vince to stumble, um, and he pulled a handgun uh, from his waistband and shot Vince almost point blank um, in the chest. Um, Vince then staggered back and stumbled and ended up being kind of on all fours, um, bent over with his back facing Hunt. Um, Hunt then fired another shot, which proved to be the fatal shot into Vince's back um, and then made his escape. Um, Responding officers heard the shots, found Vince in the alley, um, attempted to resuscitate Vince and have him transported to a hospital um, where Vince uh, never made it to the operating room. And was pronounced dead at Johns Hopkins Hospital. He was very so,
0: very young um, at this time, I believe. If memory is correct, he's like twenty
1: five. Yeah, uh, yeah, Vince was um, twenty five at the time, um, and then became then you know began not only the hunt, if you will, for for the perpetrator, but the um, the support that was needed for a, uh, devastated, obviously devastated family. Yeah. Um, and you know, as a young police officer, I heard about this. I was, I was working the midnight shift. Um, and I'll never forget it. I'm, I'm sitting out, um, early in the evening, getting ready to go in to the shift and, you know, around dinner time. And, um, neighbor came over. I lived in the Northeast district of Baltimore at the time. A neighbor came over and asked me if I heard anything. Um, and I said, no, what's up? And they they proceeded to tell me, um, because it was in the early evening that Vince was shot and I immediately went in and and tried to find out what was going on, you know, and as with all the case, when something like this happens, everybody goes to work, you know, you didn't have to be called in for overtime somebody, you know, in your, in my district, the Northeast border, the Eastern, um, so normally you go in for midnight, you know, maybe 10, 10, 30, 11 o'clock, um, get changed, play some pool, talk to everybody, you know, have a good time and then get ready to hit the road. But, um, You know, we went in early. What can we do? We got to start looking for this guy because he was still on the run. So that began that saga. Do you remember, Gary, how
0: long was for the the suspect's name? Because I'm trying to, my memory banks, it was a long time ago.
1: When when I heard the news,
0: it 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 was upsetting, very upsetting. And then when I heard who the suspect was, it was crushing.
1: I can only imagine. It was literally that evening that they had a suspect. Um, because the occupants in the car gave him up really quick, um, so they had a, they had a name. Um, obviously, they didn't, um, you know, have any forensics back or anything like that at the at the time, and, and didn't have a warrant until shortly, you know, the next day. But um, they knew who they were looking for, um, and you know, back then our homicide unit man it was it was the best in the country great, yeah i mean they those guys were amazing rick requier yeah. um jay you know jay landsman um some of those guys i mean they were the best of the best uh,
0: we had uh, those guys and i was talking with uh, chris anderson a retired birmingham homicide detective star of reasonable doubt in an interview and he talked about the old heads the old Back in the day when we were young, police, the old homicide detectives that trained you, those guys—and I'm saying guys—that men and women—when they talked, everybody listened. There was no, there was no back talk. There was no lip, none of that stuff. They had a way of carrying themselves. They meant business. They knew what they were doing, and if they said someone killed somebody, you could take it to the bank.
1: Oh, absolutely. And they didn't have the modern tools that they have now, right? So they weren't tracking people's cell phones um, and getting all this forensic data. There was no DNA. Um, this had to be good old-fashioned police work, getting witnesses, uh, building a case, getting confessions, getting interviews. I mean, these guys were good. Old-school I'm not policing. taking anything away from the, no. from the new guys. It's, um, uh, but the about, technology wasn't there.
0: Oh, well, man, we could talk about that when we return. Uh, <laughs> it was yeah. what we call gumshoe policing. It was talking to people. It was neighborhood canvases. It was finding witnesses. It was doing the stuff that people don't want to do. It's not sexy. It's not fun it's not cool but that's where cases are solved we're talking with Gary McElhinney retired Baltimore police detective also retired Maryland Transportation Authority chief of police and co-author of the book four decades police in the violent city of Baltimore with co-author Kevin Cowherd we've got so much more to talk about don't go anywhere we will be right back This portion of the Law Enforcement Today radio show is brought to you in part by Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. Everyone's welcome at the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page, where you'll find fun, informative, and enjoyable posts daily. Purebred, mixed breeds, rescues, we love them all. Be sure to like the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. return conversation with Gary McElhaney on the Law Enforce Today Show. Gary is a retired Baltimore police detective. He is also retired Maryland Transportation Authority police chief and co-author of the book Bleeding Blue, Four Decades Policing in a Violent City of Baltimore, co-author Kevin Cowherd. We're talking, your book is a lot about the murders of many Baltimore police, and we're talking about the case uh, which touched both of us, Vincent Adolfo. November 1985, he was murdered, and the suspect was Flint Gregory Hunt, who I had a connection with, had arrested about a year before with a gun. When we left, we talked about the homicide detective put out who they're looking for, there's warrants, all that stuff, and he had, if I remember correctly, he had taken off, didn't he?
1: He did. He, he, he took off. He originally went to Philadelphia with a, a 16-year-old girlfriend. Um she, um, they separated in Philadelphia, and he had bought a one-way bus ticket to Santa Monica, California. Um, fortunately, um, there was a nationwide manhunt for him, and a woman traveling on a bus um, out of New York um, actually recognized him from a flyer that the local police department had been distributing to those bus terminals. Again, you know, no internet, right? gumshoe police work, police officers handing out flyers at bus stations um, looking for people, and she recognized him and called the police, and he was apprehended in Oklahoma And yeah, he I got off a that. bus during a break.
0: And I also yeah. remember that he was the second to last, he was convicted, he was the second to last person in the history of Maryland to be executed, am I correct?
1: Uh, you are correct he was executed um, July 2nd of 1997 so literally 12 years after he was arrested a um, couple trials couple appeals resentence hearings um, it was really an example of in my view how the criminal justice system treats victims um, I had got I became president of the foP um, in um 1996 um and became good friends with uh, karen adolfo vince's uh young widow they did not have any children and um you know through that ordeal i really saw firsthand um how the system treats the victims and the victims are not only the people that the crime is perpetrated against but in this case their family their loved ones who simply want to see justice
0: if my memory is correct theirs was the stereotypical Hollywood-described high school romance. They were romantic when they were kids, and yeah. they'd wait till she was older, and they'd been together. That's all they ever knew was each other.
1: Correct. Karen was 12 years old, and Vince was 16 when they met. Um, Karen wasn't allowed to date um, until she was 16. Um, so, yeah, and Vince um, would travel um roughly 30 miles to visit karen um daily whether it was by bus or whether it was on his bicycle um traversing through baltimore to get to the area in baltimore county where um where karen lives so they were they were high school sweethearts even earlier and um you know had a vince had joined the Um, police department after um, a short career in construction where he where he got hurt and was looking for something more stable so him and karen could begin a life uh, and begin a family and the police department offered that
0: one of the things i've always struggled with gary is I, i i tell people that if i saw a widow of an officer, I'd be afraid to talk to him. I'd be afraid of saying the wrong thing. And you helped me with that quite a bit as a prior interview with Kim Martin Diachilla. Uh, Her husband, Billy Martin, who used to work for me in Central District of Baltimore, was shot and killed a couple months after transferred. She really helped. She said, you know, you can't make things worse. The worst has already happened. The worst you can do is ignore us uh, or not talk to me. Talk about football. If I want to talk about Billy, I'll talk about Billy. If I don't, I won't. But Karen, I was always—I always felt guilty. You know, hindsight's twenty-twenty. There's nothing I could have done different. But I always felt guilty that if I had done something different, I know logically this doesn't make sense. Vincent still be alive, and I know hindsight's twenty-twenty. I know. I'm, look, I know logically, but that did not take the emotional aspect of it. And I've always been scared to reach out and try to find Karen.
1: Yeah, I, I still—I'm still in touch with Karen today. Um, Karen has built a uh, a wonderful life for herself, but clearly she was, um, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't even have the words to describe what the devastation occurred to her and her family um, by losing Vince. They had just been married uh, a little like a month, over two years prior to the um, to Vince being killed and you know, Karen and I, we talk, we talk a lot over the years. We talked a lot, um, when I was preparing the book, um, I would not have done the book if Karen would have said no.
0: Isn't that amazing? She inspired um, you, kind of pushed you to move forward.
1: Yes. Um, I reached out to Karen and said, listen, I got this idea. I want to focus on, um, police officers killed in the line of duty. I want to talk a lot in the book and, uh, you know, I divert, uh, devote, um, Little over three chapters of the book just to Vince, because um, subsequently to um, Hunt's trials, he was sentenced to death, as you mentioned. And, you know, I vowed to be there for Karen, because Karen, and you know this, victims um, are not often granted the opportunity to witness the execution of someone that killed their loved one and um we were able to work it out where karen could be a witness to the execution and i wasn't going to let her go there alone um so i offered myself up to be a witness to the execution as well so i could accompany karen and we've had a wonderful relationship over the years um she's just a dear dear friend and i you know really enjoy spending time with her
0: please tell her i said hello and she's feel free to reach out.
1: Certainly will. Absolutely.
0: And I applaud you, Gary, for doing what you've done because here's what, when I originally started this idea for this show, uh, twofold, number one of them was, a big part of it was, so many survivors like Karen say their number one fear is that their loved one, a police officer or anybody else, would be forgotten, that no one would tell their stories. And that's a big part of why we do the Law Enforcement Today show. I can applaud you for doing what you did uh, to make sure that their, their memory is kept alive and that their sacrifice is kept alive because so many great people in Baltimore have paid the ultimate price. And many people, many, many more, have been severely injured and they, they're in wheelchairs.
1: No, you're, you're right. And, and you're right, it is hard. What do you say? I, I, you know, The countless times throughout my career, I responded to shock trauma. Um, You know, the hospital that treats our officers to hold a a, a widow's hands or or children's hands as the doctors come in and tell them that, um, you know, their loved one did not survive. Um, It's hard. It's hard. But I can tell you, um, those of us that have been in the business um, of law enforcement, we say never forget and um, and we don't we we don't and um there's great organizations out there that help these family members that are are left behind and um we got to support those and quite frankly a, a portion of my book sales are um going to two organizations one is the Signal 13 Foundation which helps Baltimore police officers um, in financial need, and cops' concerns of police survival are just... great uh, organizations. They're phenomenal. I, I want to talk about your book,
0: Bleeding Blue, great. Four Decades Policing in a Violent City of Baltimore. Where can people find it? Where can they buy it? Because you said, not only is it a great read, but it helps benefit these two great organizations.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm really proud of the book. Um, it took a while. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done, but it's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any online um, book outlet. And like I said, proceeds are going to concerns of police survivors, um, and signal 13 foundation two organizations that I've supported for years. And, um, you know, I, it, Writing the book is hard, um, and it, it puts you out there. Um, you said earlier we will never forget, and I'll be honest with you.
0: There's times I wish I could, and there are times that memories come up, and I and I, they're uninvited. They're not welcome, but they're still there.
1: Yeah, and you know, they're, and they're always going to be there. I devote a section of the book for, with photographs of every officer that was killed during my career whether it was in the Baltimore Police Department or as chief of police, I lost three officers in the line of duty Um, and eulogized each all three of those and are still close with their families. And I think that's the connection that makes it, um, I want to say, bearable. Because you're right, we we never forget, and that can yeah. be good and bad. The, the trip continues course, on.
0: Yeah, I, I going to cut you off because we're almost out of time. Is there a place where people can find out more about you or contact you online?
1: Uh, they can. Um, they can. They can reach me online at Gary at dot com, and um, I you know I'd really appreciate it if anybody. Um, has any questions, wants to reach out, wants to talk to some of our family members, um, or, or be in touch with law enforcement in Baltimore, please um, let me know. Um, the publisher is um, Apprentice House Press, great organization based out of Loyola University here in Baltimore. And um, you know, it was a great project. You said Kevin Coward's a Baltimore guy. Uh, he's he a was legend. great to work He was great to Gonna work with. I have to cut you off.
0: Gary, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. We will definitely have to have you back in the future.
1: Great. Thank you so much.
0: I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. And if you're able, leave an honest review and or rating. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.